dear Mr. or Mrs. President, I have some concerns. There are a lot of bad people in the world. And the economy could use some work. And what are you going to do to protect my freedoms? I hope you have some strong leadership. Sincerely, a concerned voter. Well, good morning. Welcome to Life Church. I'm Aaron Cole, the senior pastor. It's great to see you today. Can we welcome our online campus, our Appleton campus, Germantown campus? Wherever you are today, we are glad that you are with us. And uh, again, I hope you've had a great week. And uh, man, I love the fall. The fall is my favorite time of the year. Uh, I don't know about you. I think it's probably because of uh, pumpkin pie and apple pie, candy corn. That is, that's a vegetable, so it counts. And so anyhow, yeah, Tammy got this candy corn and I found it in the house. I came, I was gone a couple of days this, earlier this week and I came in. Uh, late on Wednesday, and uh, I go in the pantry to get something, and there is this whole bag of candy corn. Should I say there was a whole bag of candy corn? Oh, my goodness. Like, I need to get some type of detox or something. So anyhow, so uh, I love this time of the year. It's great to see you. We're starting a brand new series today, and you're not supposed to talk about religion or politics in public, and we're going to do both. And so that means we're going to be an equal opportunity offender today. And uh, not, not intending to be, see, that's what happens. So inevitably, I will get an email during this series talking about what a horrible Democrat I am or, or Republican. And I, I'm not even going to either one of those places. So uh, anyhow, we're going we're gonna to get right in, the, in this as we're talking today and uh, through the next several weeks about what's happening in the world in which we live in. Part of the reason why I do this is because I think it's important to understand that God's word works. Because um, I think a lot of times what happens, this is one of my pet peeves as a pastor, is that people just think that what we're talking about on the weekend basically works on Sundays, uh, and it works to save you kind of from hell, in essence. So if I go to church and I endure this, thank you, I appreciate that, and, uh, and I do that, then I don't go to hell. And, uh, or it just, this is, this is great for preacher talk, but it really doesn't work. The Bible says of itself that it is applicable in all times and all ways for everything in our lives. So I love to just take God at his word and go, is it, does it work this way? Um, if you were along with me in my prayer time this morning or any other day that I'm having this, I'm having a conversation with God. And, and there are times where I'm going, God, your word says, yada, yada, yada. How does this work? Or show me how to put this into practice. Or God, I'm, I'm standing on this and believing. I'm leaning so heavily on your word that if it were to move, I would fall. And so help me walk this out. This works. And here's the reality. Whether you like the election, whether you like the candidate choices, whether you're a Republican, Democrat, uh, or, or you're independent, it doesn't matter. It's swirling around on every news station Everywhere, anywhere, any, any front lines of a newspaper, you're going through an airport, uh, you're, you're at a coffee shop, uh, you're having your, your devil web, come on, don't shout me down when I'm preaching good, at George Webb, whatever you're doing, that's where I go, um, 
wherever you're doing, this is a talk and it's going on. When I was in, in Europe uh, last month, I was at breakfast or actually at lunch with, at a pastor's home and his 10-year-old son begins to have this political discourse with me about which, which party was I affiliated with and who was I voting for and, and what did I think. And his knowledge as a, as a fourth, fifth grader was amazing to me. Now then he goes into, they just think it's hysterical. And so he's showing me all these satirical YouTube clips and all of this type of a deal because it's quite the fodder for a lot of, of comedy, even outside the United States. Um, and when you hear your candidate, like this past week for the um, presidential debate in Las Vegas, and whatever your candidate says, you're like, that's awesome. And the opponent, the person that's not your candidate, they're a liar. Have you ever noticed that? It doesn't matter. Uh, it, it, it really doesn't matter. It, it's, it's, it, and so you have all of this going around. And so the Bible speaks to this. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, it gives candid advice to national leadership. And that's what we're going to do these next several weeks. We're going to, if these men that wrote the Old Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as God directed them, were to speak to a presidential candidate who gets voted into office on November 8th, what would they say? What does God's word say? And again, in the, even in the Old Testament, I don't have time to go into this, but 1 Kings chapter 12, Israel splits into two kingdoms because Solomon's son Rehoboam is the king, and he does not listen to the counsel that's given to him from God's word and from godly wisdom, but rather he listens and he bends his ear to what he wants to hear. And so the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, they go, they split. So politics, national leadership, affects us. It affects us in America today. It affected the nation of Israel thousands of years ago. This is not a new issue. This is not a new conundrum. This isn't a new situation. I don't want you to wake up and go, we've never been here before. Yes, we've been here. If you're a history teacher, you get this over and over and over and over. It is amazing how many times we have to repeat ourselves, even from generation to generation, that we forget and that we don't connect the dots. And so what I want to do today, what I'm going to do every single week is basically just tell you, here's what the Bible says. Not about a candidate, not about a party platform, but about what it means to lead. And these are principles. Practices are conditioned upon economics. They're conditioned upon times and places and geopolitical things that are happening. But the principles of God's word, they're timeless. They work with any group of people at any time and in any situation, regardless of the geopolitical or social economic dynamics that are at play. And so that's what I want to look at today. I want to go back to 600 BC when the number one world power was the Babylonian Empire, undisputed. Uh, and it was led by King Nebuchadnezzar. The Babylonian Empire is what we would know today as modern day Iraq. So, been around a long, long, long time. And at this particular point in time in history, they are the preeminent world power. They have the largest arsenal. They have the greatest army. They, uh, they have the greatest GDP. I mean, they, they are it. They, there is none around them. And about that time, some, some scholars say it was 595, 594. Some say it's 601, 602, 603 B.C. Right in the 600 B.C., the Babylonian Empire overtake the nation of Israel. They besiege the capital city of Jerusalem. And the way that the Babylonians did was different than the way that the Romans did that we read about in the first century some 600 years later. 
The way the Babylonians would overtake, when they would overcome a people, they would, they would extrapolate the very top echelon of leadership, uh, the young men, in essence, that were up and coming, and they would bring them into their, uh, basically, their, their, their national council and teach and train them and try to indoctrinate them in their ways. They would desecrate the temples and the gods that, that the, that the uh, countries that they were invading, they would desecrate them and take them out, and they would promote their gods. And they were a multi-deistic the, deistic society. So they believed in many gods and many different idols and many different things. And the king was, 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 was ruler over all. And so what's happened is, is that now that Israel's been overtaken and the capital city of Jerusalem has been besieged, and basically Israel's been stripped of all of its power, it communicates something that the God of Israel's out of business. So the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is no longer powerful. It's been overtaken by the gods of this world. Babylon, in any context, secular or sacred, is always viewed as a sinful pagan people. Babylon is a modern-day metaphor for the ultimate paganism or ultimate secular society, uh, even in secular circles. Uh, and so what's happening is, is that God is dead, is, is kind of the, the, the thought. Nebuchadnezzar is great, and he's the king. The Babylonians rule over all. There is none even beside them. Temple worship is completely gone. Matter of fact, they take all the articles of the temple that Moses, well, actually, under Moses' direction, uh, it, was, um, it was two other, uh, a whole group of artisans that came in to create all the artifacts of the temple from the goblets to the candle lamp stands to, to all of this. They take all of this in and they, they, they procure all of it. They desecrate the temples of God and, uh, and they basically put it away. And Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, their gods must be more powerful. That's kind of the, the thought. A lot different than today? There's a lot of parallels. Why? Because people don't change. Look, people are people. Genesis through Revelation to today. Humanity is humanity. Oh, we have different, different enticements, and there's, there's different nuances. But, but you go back and you just read secular history. Just read, just take a, just go to, if you've never gone to college, go to a state college, a community college, wherever, and take Western Civilization 101. It's probably one of my favorite overviews of, of any historical course that I've ever taken. People are people. It's one thing you'll learn. And, and issues with people are pretty cyclical. We kind of run in cycles. It's not linear. We don't start here and we're not progressively getting better. Actually, the world in which we live in is digressing. If you believe in, a, in an eschaton that includes God, that you believe that, that God started this thing out and sin entered, entered into the world. And since sin has entered into the world, this world is actually, as the book of Psalms says, is moaning and actually grieving out because it was never equipped to orbit the way that it does uh, with the weight of sin and perversion. Every, every group of people, you'll see the same cycles of humanity that continue to process through. And you'll see this desire for God, and you'll see when God, Jehovah God, is presented, there's always a secular world in society that will try to stomp him out and will try to rule him out and push him out. And even in today's day and age, there's a lot of that that goes on, that God's dead, that he doesn't exist. It's very interesting. But yet God, is the, as the Bible says, is the same today, yesterday, and forever. So let's just take for a minute that the word of God is true. 
Let's just pretend for a few minutes that God is who he says he is, and he has disclosed himself in the book called the Bible. What does it have to say? What's interesting is that Nebuchadnezzar, being at the top of the food chain, basically has this dream that's disturbing. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to, to uh, Daniel chapter 4. Old Testament, Daniel chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to be on the screen. But Daniel chapter 4. If you need to go to the table of contents, I'm going to give you a few minutes to do that. Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar has a disturbing, disturbing dream that no one can interpret except for Daniel. Daniel is the ultimate man of God. Here's what I want you to understand about Daniel. Many times we think that Daniel, you know, he's this man of God, and so the angels wake him up in the morning, and everything is great and roses. Some of you think that's my world, uh, that, that, you know, you're a pastor, and so everything's just great. It always falls in place. You and Tammy never have any disagreements, a.k.a. fights. You never have any problems. Your kids are perfect. Life is perfect. Everything's perfect. Nothing ever happens bad, and you don't deal with any issues or any problems because you're, you're, you know, you're, you're given. But the rest of us, we're, you know, just out here toiling away in this world. You know, and we've got all kinds of problems that you don't know anything of, and you're just kind of, and I laugh at that, but it's, when you look at Daniel, you understand this. Daniel was a young man that was in his late teens about the time that, that uh, Babylon would have been invaded Israel. He would have lived in Jerusalem. He was poised, in essence, as a prime minister of Israel. He would have been, he was a scholar. He was brilliantly smart. Uh, if he wasn't, he would have never been at the, had the access to the king the way he did. And I don't have time to unpack all this, but if you look at him along with others, um, that were brought in, the way that the Babylonians would have done, they took the top of the top. They took, they took the top 1% uh, of, of the scholars and, and those that were gifted, and they brought them into their own regime to try to indoctrinate them. Daniel wouldn't indoctrinate himself. Matter of fact, they, 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 they say, hey, we want you to eat at the king's table. We want you to have the finest of the finest. We, we, they're teaching them the ways of Babylon. And Daniel says, no, if it's okay with you, I'm going to do. And a lot of people now, they call this the Daniel fast. I'm just going to eat this particular. I'm not going to have the king's meat and the choices. I'm going to have this vegetable, basically diet with some fruits. And I'm going to do this according to the Levitical law. And then you test me at the end and see if I don't perform better than everybody who's partaking of the king's table. They do and he does. I mean, he's the top of the top. Daniel will never live in a society that embraces God. Daniel will live his entire life under three pagan regimes. Daniel will never live as a free man who's free to worship God. Matter of fact, Daniel will always be persecuted for his faith. Daniel will be in life and death situations because of his belief in God. Daniel will always be there. So as you read this, I don't want you to read this and think, well, Daniel must have had this thing and the angels woke him up in the morning and they had this heavenly breakfast every day and life was just roses and everything was great. No! He had all this ability. He had all this talent. He, he, was, he was the top of his class. He was the best of the best. He was in the top 1% of everything. He was poised to lead. And in his prime time to do what was in his heart to do, boom, Israel comes under the rule and the reign of the most secular, pagan, anti-God government that had, the world had ever seen. And he has to live through that. Then he has to live through the Medes and through the Persians. He has to live his entire life in captivity. Yet in all of this, he's the only one in Scripture that the author writes, that God writes, he was a man of an excellent spirit. Not because things were easy, not because the society embraced him, not because it was a Christian society. It was the opposite. It was hostile towards everything he believed. Yet he lived. 
And God advanced him and God brought him. And we see it here. Nebuchadnezzar has this disturbing dream and only Daniel can interpret. Daniel chapter 4, starting verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous, verse 5, and I had a dream that made me afraid. Even people in powerful places, God speaks to, and they live in fear. They don't report it, but they live in fear. He goes on, verses 6 through 16, and he describes the dream. Go down to verse 17. The decision is announced by the messengers. The Holy One declares this verdict. This is Daniel speaking here. So that the living may know that the Most High, speaking of God, is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, and he gives them to anyone he wishes, and he sets them over the lowliest of men. Skip on out to verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king. This is a decree that the Most High, speaking of God, has issued against my Lord. Notice the lower KL and lower KK, the king, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 25. You will be driven away from the people. You will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. You will be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass, meaning seven years, will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High, God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. That's Nebuchadnezzar. And he gives them to anyone he wishes. Your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Verse 29, 12 months later. Notice, 12 months has passed since he's had the dream and God has spoken through Daniel. God always gives you a window of opportunity and grace. Because he gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. Twelve months later, the king was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. And he said, is this not the great Babylon that I have built? From my royal residence, but my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Look at verse 31. And the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what was decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people. You will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. And he gives them to anyone he wishes. Verse 34, and at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised, who? The Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the power of heavens, with the peoples of this earth. And no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven. Because everything he has done is right and all of his ways are just. And those who walk in his pride, he is able to humble. Interesting. Next generation, his son Belshazzar doesn't learn from his father's mistakes. Belshazzar goes in, Daniel chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 17, and, Daniel, and, and Belshazzar goes in and he has this crazy debaucherous party. So they're snorting cocaine, they're tripping on LSD, I know it doesn't say that, but it, it insinuates it. And uh, I mean, it's a crazy raunchous party. And I mean, it's, there's sex, drugs, rock and roll, everybody's there. And, and Belshazzar goes in, and to, to make it the most defiling party that he can, he goes in and gets the sacred items from the temple, from the temple of God, that they had taken some 60 years earlier. And he gets them, and he begins to drink the wine and have this party out of these golden goblets that God spoke to Moses to make for him. And a hand comes in the middle of the party and begins to write on the wall. 
These guys think they're drunk. They think they're tripping. This is a bad acid trip. And so they began to try to find people that are sober and nobody can inscribe because the writing is not Babylonian. They don't understand what language it is. And they began to ask around and guess who is the one who can interpret? Daniel. In the middle of this raucous party, Daniel comes in. Look at verse 17. And Daniel answered the king. You may keep your gifts. He was trying to offer him whatever he wanted for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Daniel couldn't be bought. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and I will tell him what it means. Verse 18. O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Notice who gave Nebuchadnezzar his power. God. Verse 19. Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples of the nations and the men of every language dreaded and feared him. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was disposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. Verse 21. He was driven away from the people, given the mind of an animal. He lived like with wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle. And his mind was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets him over anyone he wishes. Why is he giving him this history lesson? Because history always repeats itself. But you, O son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all of this. Knowledge, you're responsible for knowledge. Verse 23, instead you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you. And you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines, your prostitutes, drank from them. And you praised the gods of gold and of silver and of bronze and of iron and of wood and of stone. What's he talking about? He's talking about idols. He's brought all these idols in that they worship. All these gods that they worship. Which cannot hear you. Or see you or understand you. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all of your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. The inscription that was written is this. I won't even try to. My Hebrew is a little, little rusty with my redneck Arkansas right there. I'll let you do that. Look at verse 26. This is what these words mean. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought them to an end. Secondly, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. You've come up short. And thirdly, your kingdom is divided and it will be given to the Medes and the Persians. That night, history tells us that the Medes and the the Persians invade this impenetrable city of Babylon. They had tried. No one had ever been able to do this. They tried to do this. And they were unable to do this. And they go in that night to the aqueducts of the city and come into the inside and invade it and Belshazzar is destroyed and the kingdom is destroyed. The year was 539 B.C., 60 years after Nebuchadnezzar had learned his lesson and had taken over the nation of Israel. See, if God is the same today, yesterday, and forever, if he doesn't change, and and his word says that he doesn't, there's three things I think leaders can't forget. Whoever sits in the office of president must remember. First, that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, and he gives them to anyone he wishes. If that's true, you and I should go vote because that's our right, not God-given right, but it's our right as Americans. Because God works through us. God works through us. It's the same way with prayer. Why do I need to pray? Because God works through prayer. Because when we acknowledge him and we do this, he works through us. But let us understand that God is going to do what God is going to do. He is sovereign. And if he is sovereign, 
when you wake up on November 9th, whether your candidate gets in office or not, they didn't get there by themselves. They're like the turtle on the fence post. They got there because there was someone that helped them to get there. Psalm chapter 75, verse 6 and 7, for exaltation or promotion comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is a judge and he puts one up and he exalts another. Make no mistake, if God doesn't change, if his word is true, if what Malachi says that God changes not, then the same God of, of, of Daniel in 600 BC is the same God in the 21st century. And whoever comes into power and whoever comes into a place of leadership and whoever comes into a place of authority, high or low, God allows that. And your life and in my life, I don't stand on this platform because of me or because of my credentials or my academic standing or my hard work. No, I am here because the grace of God has called me here and placed me here. And when he's done with me, he will lead me on. The same with you. You don't have the money that you have, the power that you have, the influence that you have because you're smart enough, good enough, or fast enough. It's because the grace of God that's been given to you that he has crowned your efforts with success. Whether you are completely far away from him and you are secular and pagan as was the Babylonians or whether you are walking in step with Jesus as was Daniel. God is the sovereign most high and he rules over all the kingdoms of men and he sets one up and he brings another down. Woo, I'm preaching better than you're shouting. The good news is, is God's in control. If you believe the Bible, God is in control, period. That's the reason why we have no reason to fear. Because God's in control. Yeah, 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 I get that, I get that. Well, if you dichotomize your life and all church in the Bible is is to save your butt out of hell, then you have a hard time with this theologically. But if you really believe that God is in control, if you really believe that God is the same yesterday and forever, if you really believe that God is on the throne, if you really believe what Daniel just recorded there and uh, multiple times in chapter 4 and chapter 5, you can take a deep breath and know that whomever is in power and in control God's allowing. And without his blessing, no one's there. And if God is done with them, they're not there. For seven years, and history verifies this, that Nebuchadnezzar went about like a crazed man, not coming inside, walking around on, on his knees and his hands, eating the grass of the field, didn't cut his hair, didn't cut his fingernails, didn't bathe, didn't shower, and all of a sudden, Seven years he comes to the end of that, and there's a clarity. The sovereign, the most highest sovereign of the kings of men, he gives them to anyone he wishes. Second statement that we see here, and Andy Stanley, the great pastor at North Point Community Church in Atlanta, Georgia, says it this way, that leadership is a stewardship. It is temporary, and we are accountable. Leadership is a stewardship. It is temporary, and we are accountable. Stewardship, it's like a lease, it's like a car lease. You're not the owner. This past August, I had a car that I needed to sell that was my daughter's, and I had a, and it was a, just kind of a beater of a, of, of a used car, but I had to sell it because I owned it. And then I had a car lease, a very nice car that I was, had never leased before. I thought, I'm going to try this. I'm just going to see because I, I had this high threshold need for change. And so I get bored with things really, really, really easy. And so I just thought, I'll, I'll lease this out and see how it goes. And so what was interesting to me is that when I went to turn the lease car in, I, I, I decided I'm not going to lease another car with this particular company out because I didn't like it. I just want to see how they would treat me if I didn't buy their product again. 
You know what I'm saying? I just want to really get the full. It was easy. Matter of fact, it was so easy, it was scary. So I walk into the dealership. I give them the, the two sets of keys, the key fobs, and I sign my name, and I walk out, and I'm thinking, this is way too easy. So I actually called the, 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 the overall company and just said, hey, I've got this 1-800 number, and I just turned my car lease in over here at the dealership, and I just need to know. Like, I just gave them the keys and signed for it because I'm thinking, did I do the right thing? I mean, am I, like, I going to get a, car, a call like, hey, where's our car, right? Kind of a deal. And they're like, yes, sir, Mr. Cole, we're showing right here on our computer that you sent it in. Here was your mileage. Da, 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 da. That's it. They said, that's it, sir. You're done. Wow. The beater of a car? Oh, dear Lord. I had to take pictures, put it on Craigslist. I had to beg, plead, borrow for somebody to buy it. Do you understand? Because I owned it. It's mine. I had to take care of it. The lease, it's not mine. I don't own it. The car company owns it. That's how our life is. We're just leasing this time. We don't own it. See, I think I get this as a pastor better than you get this as a business person. Because as a pastor, what I understand is, is it's just not Life Church Inc. that I own. Oh, yeah, we're fully incorporated and we're a 501c3 and we have a board of directors and we have to comply with certain IRS stipulations and also with the state of Wisconsin and certain codes and things of this nature, blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, I don't own this place. I can raise tens of millions of dollars, and, and, and I don't own anything. When I'm done, I'm done. I don't get anything. I don't have a stock option. I don't have something that I'm getting. There, there's not any of that. And with the business, you, you own the business. So you own the property, and then you have the property. Uh, you, you actually have, because you own the property in a separate holding company. So you have the property pay your business, or the business pay you in the separate holding company for the property. And then you own the business. And if it's a family business, then there's probably some family shares that are going on. you got to buy this person out and that person out. And then there's property, and there's taxes, and there's all of these things. But you own it. So when you go to sell it, you're trying to monetize it and value it so that you can then, then turn around and try to, try to sell this property so then you can sell it out for, for X, X amount out of dollars because you own it. The reality is, is in our life, we don't own anything. You ever seen a U-Haul behind a hearse? You're not going to take it with you. And I got news for you. When you leave for your kids and your grandkids, they're going to go through it like nobody's business because they didn't work and sweat and toil like you did. Leadership is a stewardship. It's a lease, not an ownership. It's temporary. You don't have it for forever. And the day that you do, and when I read those words of the life of Nebuchadnezzar, I realize how fleeting, how fast it is. And it's accountable. We give an account for what we do. Whoever sits in the leadership in this country and who's voted in on November 8th, they're not the owner of this nation. This is a temporary gig. And it may not go four years or eight years because their life could be required of them before that amount of time. See, we think, well, they're going to be there for four years. Who knows? Who knows? And they're accountable, not just to us as, as a country and as a people, but they're accountable unto God. The third thing is that great leaders serve others first and themselves last. It's true of history. It's true of the Bible. Jesus is the greatest leader to ever walk the face of the planet. Other people first, himself last. As you vote on November 8th, my goal is not to tell you who to vote for. 
my vote, my, my desire is not to try to drive you into a particular direction, but really more for you to reflectively think, who's the person that's going to vote the values that you espouse? You may be disgusted with both of them. I get it. But based upon their platforms, Matter of fact, I mean, the, I was in Oxford for the, in, in England for the first presidential debate, and I'm watching this on my iPad in the middle of the night when the wee hours of the morning on my CBS app, and I'm watching all of this back and forth. It was fascinating to me. But there was a lot of banter back and forth. This past week when they were in Las Vegas, and, and they are at UNLV, and, and they're giving their basic platforms. Brent Hume did an awesome job, in my opinion, of being able to get them to say, here are the major dividing issues. Here are the major policy issues. Here are the major half dozen things that you guys are going to enact in office. And they are as daylight and dark different in those two things. So which one of those platforms is your value? And I understand everybody has opinions about this. I met Bill and Hillary Clinton when I was 10 years of age. My dad was a United Auto Worker president at the factory that my dad worked at. I went later to meet them at the, uh, when they were the, the governors of the state of Arkansas. I don't know them personally. It's not like they're like come over for dinner with my mom and dad. But, but my dad is a blue dog Democrat. And I was raised in a blue collar working house. I'll never forget Somebody pulled a prank on my dad one time. Yeah, my dad drove this pickup truck. And uh, on the back bumper, they put a, it was a Bush Reagan bumper sticker. And my dad came in. He got home at 4.10 every day. It took him 10 minutes to get from the plant to the house. And so it was a, he got off at 4 o'clock, and he pulled in the driveway. My brother and I were there playing football in the yard. And he didn't even ask. He just thought it was us. We got a bumper sticker and we put it on there. He lit us up like a Christmas tree. And we were both like, I was looking at my brother like, did you do this? Like, you're not this stupid, are you? No, I didn't do this. <laughs> to this day, he denies it, but I, I, I vividly remember it. That conversation, this is going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me. Oh, yeah, you want to trade places and just see? You know, whichever. And I get it. There are some that just go, well, we're just going to vote the economy. That's fine. But I'm just saying, when you go back and you read a passage like this, the economy is not even mentioned. See, according to Daniel, your talent, your education, your wealth may make you famous as a leader. But what you do with the platform that you're given and how you distribute that is whether or not determines whether you're a great leader. I think that we would do well by just understanding that we're just part of what God's doing. Any leader, leading uh, scholar in the Bible will tell you as they're trying to decipher end time prophecy, no one believes that the United States is there. Russia's there, Middle East is there, China's there. We are nowhere to be found. See, we like to think that we're all that. And, and again, I love America. God bless America. I'm with Lee Greenwood. I mean, this is the best place in the world, right? Seriously, and I travel all over. 
But a few weeks ago, I'm standing there and I'm looking at the, one of the original, uh, uh, written in Hebrew, one of the original uh, documents from the minor prophets of the Old Testament that had been lost in the library for 400 years. Tyndall had written his inscriptions of his transcriptions as he was commissioned by King, uh, by King James to write the Bible from Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic into the English language. That's how far this thing had dated back. And I thought to myself, as I'm looking at that, at that, piece, of, that piece of documentation there, I'm looking at that and I'm going, that book was lost longer than our country's been around. See, there's a time where we think we're all that and we're it and everything. And I do think we're a blessed nation. And I do think that we're based on Judeo-Christian values. And I do think that, 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 that I, I, I am a very big optimist. And I believe that the Bible says that before the end shall come, there will be a great awakening. There'll be a great revival that God will be exalted and the end shall come. And I believe we can be right in the very middle of that. But I make no mistake to think that we're all that. Because God is sovereign most high over all the kingdoms of man. And ultimately, he's going to do what he's going to do. So why does it matter? It matters because he asks us. It matters because his word says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. What matters is, is that when we saw the great awakening that took place in our country 200 years ago, there was a massive move of the Holy Spirit that God began to work through major reformed churches and conservative churches and Protestant churches in the Northeast and men like Jonathan Edwards that would stand and preach God's word and would call for holiness and call for repentance and call the church to prayer. And it changed our nation. Great men like Moody, if you go downtown Chicago, right off the Magnificent Mile, you'll see Moody Bible Institute. He was a cobbler that was powered by the Holy Spirit that God used to do great things in this country. Can God do it again? Yes. Why? Because he's the same today, yesterday, and forever. The question is, is will we, the church, awaken ourselves, not to become some political force, but to be a people that will acknowledge that God is sovereign most high over all the kingdoms of this world, and he exalts those in whom he chooses. And if we will but humble ourselves before him, he will be exalted. So if Daniel were to write a letter to our next president, it might go something like this. Dear Mr. President, while it is true that you're accountable to us, the American people, we are not your source of ultimate accountability. While it is true that you must answer to Congress, you must one day answer to someone far, a far greater consequence. While you consult with leaders from around the world, our hope is that you will not forget to consult with the creator of this world. As the great King Nebuchadnezzar was once reminded, the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms and he gives them to anyone he wishes. So is your leadership, like all leadership. It is a stewardship. It is temporary. And you are accountable. Father, I just thank you today for your word that's timeless. And I just pray, God, that you, Lord, would just speak to our hearts today, this week. God, in these, in these days leading up to this national election, God, we look to you. It's not my place or the place of any church or anybody to say this is the person or this is the candidate. But rather my job is to equip these saints to do the work of ministry. To simply communicate what your word says and allow you to speak. 
So speak, Holy Spirit. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.